seated. Thank you, Maddie, for reading that. Um, started with a quote last week. We'll start again with another quote. This is from Leslie Newbegin. Newbegin is a missiologist. Uh, I really enjoy his stuff. Listen to, this, listen to this quote. I believe it's on the board. It can be on the board above me. There we go. It's a lot of words there. Listen to this. If the gospel is to challenge the public life of our society, if Christians are to occupy the high ground which they vacated in the noonday of modernity, it will not be by forming a Christian political party or by aggressive propaganda campaigns. It will only be by movements that begin with local congregations which the reality of the new creation is present, known, and experienced. But this will only happen as and when local congregations renounce an introverted concern for their own life recognize that they exist for the sake of those who are not members, a sign, instrument, and foretaste of God's redeeming grace for the whole life of society. That's a great quote. We could spend months breaking apart that quote. But essentially, Newbegin is saying that uh, that the church, uh, if it wants to have a presence, if it wants to do good in the world, uh, it's not by these grandiose things we might do, whether it's in politics or, or, or social campaigns or other avenues, but it's actually going to be with local congregations, i.e., like us, that have actually embodied the gospel to such a level that we've come to say we exist not primarily for ourselves, but we exist as a body for the good of our community, for the good of our neighbors, to love, to serve them, renounce an introverted concern for their own life, and recognize they exist for the sake of those who are not its members. It's not that we're not for each other. We are. The body of Christ, we are a family. We are the people of God. So we care deeply for one another. We love one another. We meet each other's needs. We, we show concern for one another. But all of it is that we are a community with an end goal of mission. We come together that we would go out. We're blessed that we might be a blessing. It's all throughout Scripture. It's the theme of what God's people are called to do. We are really the only group in society that is, exists for the outsider, for the non-member. You can't think of another club, another the chess team, they come together because they like chess. Or the swim team, or the rotary club, or your business practice. There's all an affinity of some sort that brings them together for the sake of themselves, primarily. And the church is actually says we're the opposite. We come together to bless one another, but to bless those outside. It's a radical concept, but it's at the heart of what the Gospel is. Unfortunately, um, if we're honest, the church hasn't done that so well, right? I mean, we haven't, uh, we haven't had a great track record of being for ourselves, uh, of being for others. We've been a, more known for being for ourselves. We, we sort of silo, and we, we keep our distance, and we maybe cloister away. Maybe we're afraid of the culture and the, wo- uh, and the world, and so we, we create our own little Christian sub-communities, little bubbles that we think will keep us safe Uh, from the the bad things out there. But when we do that, when we make that move, we actually go away from the whole thrust and the trajectory of God's plan for redemption. Because we are the vehicle to bless the world. And so, here at Christ Redeemer, we we want more. (laughs) You know? uh, We have our own faults. We'll continue to have them. But we want to be a church that's on mission, that engages the world. We started last week a series entitled... Neighbors Jesus Loved, and uh, it's titled that, um, and what we're saying is not, let's just go love our neighbors. What we're saying is, by the title of the series, is that 
embedded in that title is the fact that we don't do that very well. And so we're looking at neighbors that Jesus loved as He is the exemplar, as He is the one that's going to show us and teach us and train us to how to love because uh, we struggle. We struggle to love. Um, and last week we, we looked at the same passage, but we looked at the first part where Jesus is engaged with a man. It says he's a lawyer. We, we said that he's a Bible teacher. And we displayed last week that this man didn't love very well. He didn't engage Jesus to love Jesus. He engaged Jesus as competition. Do you remember that? We talked about it. He, he tried to test him, the text says. He tried to uh, tear Jesus down because Jesus was a threat. He was the new guy in town. And so he tried to tear him down and he tried to build himself up. And then when Jesus said, well, you should live up to your own standard, he got defensive and he tried to justify himself. He didn't love very well, but... Contrary to that, Jesus did love very well. Jesus engaged him, and he didn't shun him. He told him stories, and he asked a question or two, and he tried to get beyond the veneer. Today we're going to look at the actual story he tells. It's the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You, you've heard it. It's, very, uh, it's a, probably one of the most well-known parables Jesus tells. But Jesus is going to tell the parable in response to the question, who is my neighbor? Because the lawyer doesn't want a neighbor well, so he's tried to restrict who he has to neighbor. So he says, well, let's get technical here. Let me use my lawyering skills, and let's define what's the jurisdiction to neighbor, who's in, who's out. That way, I can limit what I'm actually called to do. It's a, it's a tactical move by the Bible teacher, but Jesus won't do that. And so Jesus is going to tell this shocking story uh, about what it means to neighbor. And he, he does it by contrast. There's three main characters. We're going to look at each one of them. But first of all, the context. It says that a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So uh, Jerusalem is, is elevated a couple thousand feet above sea level, and he was going down to Jericho. Jericho's east, northeast of Jerusalem, roughly 17, 18 miles. It's down, it's kind of windy, and there were, there were kind of caves along the way, and there were kind of dark patches, and so it was known to be a pretty scary trek. It was a dangerous area. And sure enough, this man that was traversing that path, he fell among robbers. And it says that he was stripped, and they beat him, and the text says they left him for dead. It doesn't tell us the nationality of the man, but we assume, uh, we assume that he was a Jew, based on the context of the story. And so this man is beaten, left for dead in a ditch, and now three different people are going to walk by, and that's the story. And we'll look at each character. First of all, the first person that goes by is the priest. And the text says, verse 31, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. Now, Jesus is not saying like the world is, is random. There's... Uh, it's chance, uh, you know, roll the dice. He's not saying that. It's his way of saying, by chance of saying, uh, it's the, despite the difficulties this guy has faced, despite his hardship and being in the ditch and almost dying, good news, there's someone come. It's a priest. And the priest, the descendant of Aaron, his job is to care for the people. So this guy's going to get relief. This guy's going to get care. The priest... The role of the priest is to take the people of God and to take them to God. To mediate for man to God. To care for them. 
And so surely, surely the priest would take care of this man in the ditch. But it says he passed by on the other side. He didn't help him, right? You know the story. Actually, he intentionally saw him and then went around to the other side to get away from the man. Why did he do that? Um, there's a lot of speculation. Some says, well, it was a dangerous place, so the, the priest was afraid if, if he helped, he would be vulnerable. And maybe he would be robbed. Um, others have speculated that you know, if you, in the Old Testament, if you touch a dead body, you become ceremonially unclean. So if the man was already dead and the priest touched him, then he would become unclean, which is possible, but the priest wasn't going to Jerusalem. He was going away from Jerusalem. So he'd already done his priestly duties. So that's unlikely the reason. And the text doesn't give us it doesn't give us the reason. I think intentionally there's no motive shown. The point is that the priest did not help the man in need. There was no compassion. I think if we gave us a motive, we, we would like to rationalize. This is what we do. Well, well, maybe the priest was, what if he was going to help someone else? You know, It could have been a family emergency. The priest was going, and so this man's in a ditch, and so it, it makes sense. He went around, or... There could have been other scenarios, situations, and Jesus doesn't put that in there because that's not the point. The point is that this man lacked compassion. To love this man, to show compassion was an inconvenience. Last week we said when we don't neighbor well that we see people uh, as tools to use, we see people as threats, or we see people as obstacles. That means they are in our way. We're going somewhere, we've got a plan, we've got an agenda, we've got a goal, and then there are things in our way, people, and we just, let's go around to accomplish our goal and our plan. And the priest fails. His heart, his heart is hard and he is callous. There's a way for all of us to rationalize, isn't there? Even in our religious duties, this man used his religious status to can rationalize lovelessness and not serving and not caring. But compassion is at the heart of religious duty. Jesus says that, right? We just, the man just quoted it. What's the end of the law? It's to love God and love neighbors. Yeah, do the stuff in the temple. That's great. But the heart of religion is to love people particularly those as they are in need. And so, compassion is needed um, for all of us, no matter what our calling is, no matter what our vocation is. When those enter into our path and they're in need, we're called as God's people to step in and show compassion. So I don't care if you're a financial planner or you're a nurse or you're a teacher or stay-at-home mom or dad or you're whatever you are. When God brings people in our path and we're going somewhere, we got an agenda, we got a plan, and then someone's right there in the ditch and we see them, we're supposed to see them. It's actually not by chance. God's put us there to have compassion, to see them made in the image of God. When I used to work at Grace Community Church, uh, behind the church is, is Hillsdale neighborhood, which is a pretty rough area. And so there'd be quite often there'd be people coming off the street. And they needed, uh, they were homeless, or they needed food, they needed clothing, they needed light bills, they needed all kinds of things. And I can't tell you the number of times I was like, oh. You know, they always wanted to meet with a pastor. And I'm thinking, this is just so inconvenient. Like, 
Like, I've got to go write my sermon on loving people, and I've got to deal with this guy here that wants food. Like, this is just not my plan, you know? And it was just this, ugh. You know, I've got to go tell someone about Jesus and get ready for my meeting, and now this person's here and he has needs. It's not very convenient. See how we can rationalize, justify a lack of compassion? Something has to do with lifestyle and busyness and the way we live. There are implications for our lives. But the, the priest had someone right there and his lack of compassion, his indifference um, is marked. Um, the second guy comes by verse 32. It says, likewise, that tells us something already, a Levite, when he came to the, into the place and saw him, he did the same thing. He passed by on the other side. Um, Levites were not priests, but they were, they were the, the assistant to the priests. They were the priest aides. They were religious leaders as well. They worked, uh, they had special duties in the temple. They had special services. They had special rights and privileges. And so this was another religious leader. And so we've got the priest and we've got the Levite, two religious leaders. And the, the Bible teacher, the scholar, would identify with them as a religious leader, right? A scholar. And yet this second person is sort of a dagger here to the system of religion, to Judaism. Because if the priest just walks by, you say, you know, he's a bad apple, you know. It's kind of an anomaly. That's a, let's throw that. It's a bad sample. But now you've got two of them walking by. You say something's fundamentally wrong with their system of religion. Two people have walked by. Two people have failed to show compassion. Something was wrong with first century Judaism. And by Jesus telling it, this man that was asking, this lawyer was indicted. Um, somehow in their system of religion, they had missed the main thing. You know how we do that in churches? Like, you can miss the main thing. You've been a part of a church that's, uh, that's fought about the carpet or like the worship music. Oh, I like the contemporary. Or gosh, I don't like those old hymns. And there's like these blow-ups. you seen this? Somebody say you have. You know, or the coffee or there's something like, what are we talking about? Like, somehow in the system, in the way, we miss the heart of the gospel. We miss it's about this love and compassion. It's about what Christ has done. And we, we argue about these things. And the church, when it's been at its best throughout history, hasn't done that. Church at their best, they, they create hospitals. How many hospitals are named Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist or Catholic? Right? Because Christians care for the wounded. They show compassion. Or the orphans. Who built orphanages? It's Christians, right? Who cares for the widows? Who feeds the hungry? It's Christians. We're known for this at our best. During the plagues, who cared for those that were sick and dying? The pagans left. The Christians stayed and they cared. That's what we're called to do. But here, the Levite, he doesn't do it. He moves out. It's an indictment on Judaism. But furthermore, the Levite is particularly indicted here. It's, it's heartless. I put a verse up there from Deuteronomy 26. I'm going to read this to you. This is about the tithe. The tithe was given. It's the responsibility of the people of God to be faithful, to give money. And that money was given uh, to the church or to, to Israel. 
And the, Le- the Levite didn't earn a wage. He didn't have a job like everyone else. He lived off of the tithe, off the faithfulness. But look who he's associated with in this tithe. This tithe goes to whom? When you finish paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, give it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. He goes on to say it again, to the Levite, to the sojourner, to the fatherless, to the widow, all according to the commandments that you have commanded me. The guy in the ditch and the Levite, they're, they're, they're the same person. They're in need. They benefit from the generosity and the compassion of God's people. If anyone should have been grateful, if anyone should have been moved to help someone in need, it should have been the Levite. The down and out. The man in the ditch. The Levite was receiving blessing already from the faithfulness of God's people, just like the alien, the foreigner, just like the orphan, the widow, the Levites in the same camp. And now a man in the ditch, definitely in need, and Levite sees him and says, no thanks. I'm going to go around. Reminds me of that parable. Uh, it's in Matthew 18. Uh, it's called a couple things, but sometimes you hear it called the parable of the ungrateful servant. Do you remember that? The... the uh, the master calls the servant in and says, you owe me your debt. And the debt was enormous. I mean, it was like, you know, it was like the U.S. national debt. You know, it was like trillions of dollars. It'll never be paid off. It's forever, you know. And, uh, and the, guy, the master says, I need you to pay me. Uh, if not, you're going to go to jail. Your family's going to be split up. It's this awful thing. And what does the guy do? He cries for mercy. There's no way I can pay. There's no way. And the master has mercy on him. Do you remember the story? And he forgives the debt. And then that man goes out, the man that's been forgiven, and he finds one of the people that owes him, one of his servants, and he owes him about three months' wages. So it's a good bit of money, but nothing compared to what he owed the master. And the man who had been forgiven goes to his servant and says, pay me now. And the guy says, I don't have the money. I don't have the money. Read it in Matthew 18. You know what he does? He chokes him. <laughs> he goes over to choke him and says, pay what you owe, pay what you owe. He had been forgiven so much, an insurmountable amount. But he forgot. Forgot the compassion and the mercy. It's the Levite, isn't it? The lack of gratefulness. We, we pass by sometimes because we've forgotten. Um, we've lost the gratefulness. Do you know what you've received? Do you know what you've received? Um, compassion flows from knowing what we have received, from gratitude. Um, all of us, if we're breathing today, this breath or just the heartbeat, you feel it, feel your pulse, right? It's a gift of God. The food we're going to eat is a grace. The clothes we're wearing is a grace. God has given us. Yes, we live in a fallen world, but it is a grace. It is a gift from God. The seasons, all that he's given us. And not only has God given, but we've given one another. One of the lies of the American, American stories is that we're sort of self made, you know? We're hard chargers, we pull ourselves up and we do it ourselves. And, 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 and in many ways, we work hard, that's great, but nobody stands alone. Nobody's here 
without the benefit and the blessing of other people. A parent, grandparent, teacher, coach, mentor, counselor, somebody has blessed you to make you where you are today. And when we know that gratitude, deep down when it sinks in, it produces a compassion and a desire to move out. And the Levite had forgotten it. To, to neighbor love, we have to know the gratitude we've received. Finally, there's uh, verse 33. There's the Samaritan. And this is shocking. You know, the, the, the story should go, uh, you know, a priest, a Levite, and an Israelite walk into a bar. You know, you know it, it should be something like that. You know, the, the priest, the Levite, and the ordinary Israelite are walking down the road, and they see a man in the ditch, and the priest passes by, and the Levite passes by. But the ordinary Israelite sees the need, and he goes in and has compassion. That... That is what the lawyer is expecting. As a religious leader, he's expecting that. Um, that's a theme throughout Israel. You remember the Old Testament. Often Israel had bad kings or a bad priests. But though the king was bad, the people, there was a remnant that was good. And so the leader can be bad, the pastor can be really bad, but the people can be faithful, right? There's that narrative. That happens. And Israel was exiled, and yet some of them were faithful and so the, the, the lawyer was expecting this storyline. And it would have made a point, it would have cut him, but it would have been tolerable. An Israelite was the hero. But instead, the hero is the Samaritan. The Samaritan. Um, and the Samaritan, that's a, that's a curse word here to the Jew. We use the phrase good Samaritan for someone to help someone on the side of the road, or someone having a hard time, they're a good Samaritan. That was an oxymoron to the Jew. It doesn't exist. Um, Samaritans were half-breeds. They had come from the northern tribes. They'd been exiled, and now they've come back, and they, they've, they've married into the pagans, and so they're sort of Jewish and sort of not, and they sort of follow Judaism, but they follow the pagan gods and this syncretistic thing they do. They don't worship in Jerusalem like you're supposed to. Everybody knows that. They're this vile, cruel, we have nothing to do. Jews would go out of their way to go around Samaria. And now the Jewish Bible leader is being told the Samaritan is the hero. It can't be. It'd be like a, you know, a, a, it'd be like a runaway slave being a hero to a Klansman or something. Or a, you know, a Jew during the Holocaust escapes Auschwitz and goes and helps the Nazis... You know, SS officer. It, it just doesn't work. And the story is supposed to be that radical to us. It's a, it's a non sequitur. It doesn't connect. And he uses the, the worst possible story to show the Samaritan is the hero. It says The text says he had compassion. Notice how bad it is at the end. It says, uh, which one of these was a neighbor? The guy can't even say Samaritan. He says, uh, the one who showed mercy. You know? The Bible teacher can't even get it to say, I'm not going to say that word. I'm not going to give them the credit. Samaritan. What do we learn? What do we learn from the Samaritan? The first thing we learn is that love and compassion has no boundaries. There's, there's no barriers. Um, we don't get to define who, who we love and who we don't love. Uh, when those are in need, we display love. Not our, 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 our race, our ethnicity, our color, our gender, uh, sexuality. There's, no, there's nothing 
that limits compassion for those who are in need. Remember the question, uh, who is my neighbor, was trying to restrict, was trying to put terms on it, but there are no terms to compassion. Anyone in need is who we're to be neighbor to. And the, the, the line of thinking goes like this. If the Samaritan loved the Jew as a neighbor, then the Jew must love the Samaritan. And if the Jew loved the Samaritan, then the Jew must love everybody. Because there's nothing worse than the Samaritan, the enemy, the vilest. There's no barrier. One objection. Sometimes when we hear compassion has no limits, we hear uh, I'm supposed to agree with everyone that I help or show compassion. Do you, do you hear that objection? Sometimes in our circles we have the right and wrong. We've got to make sure we get it straight. And so we think, well, yeah, but what about their lifestyle? Or what about um, uh, the way they view things? Or what about their convictions? We're talking about compassion for those in need. And there is no limit. There is no barrier should we help the Muslim or Jehovah's Witness or the alt-right or the gay activist or the refugee or the immigrant or fill in the blank? Should we show them compassion? I mean, do you know their beliefs and their stance? Jesus answers yes. Anyone... In need. And to not do so is actually opposite of the gospel. We say there, there's something about them that disqualifies them. Something vile about the Samaritan disqualifies They're not worthy of my compassion. That's how the thinking goes. Because of how they live or what they believe, therefore they're not worthy of compassion. As if what? What's the assumption? We're worthy of compassion. <laughs> so... We're, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. If, if I, they have to get it right and then we'll show compassion and care. As if we ever got it right. The Gospel is, we were at our worst. We, weren't, we put ourselves in the story, we think we're the Samaritan, but we were the priest and the Levite. We could care less. At our worst, God came to us. There is no limit God's trying to create humility in this man. He's trying to show him his need. That he needs mercy just like the man in the ditch. Who is it that you write off? Who is it you dismiss? The Gospel always moves towards the marginalized and the broken. Second thing we learn from the Samaritan here is that um, true love, it uh, not only has no boundaries in compassion, but it, it also, it's going to cost us a lot. That's just the truth. It's going to cost us. Um, we haven't addressed all that the, that the Samaritan did. There's a couple of, of, of paintings here I want to show you. Go back to the first one, yeah. This is uh, Luca Giordano, 1650. It's a picture of, of the naked body here on the side and the blood and the like I know there's a lot of medical people, like I get kind of nauseous at blood and bodily fluids and stuff like that. And so this guy saw the messiness. This guy had no clothes on. He was stripped. 
And he saw him and he said, I'm going to get messy and I'm going to roll up my sleeves and get involved. Um, the painting portrays pouring, pouring oil and wine. Those were the, the disinfectant. They were medicinally of the day trying to help trying to help this man. But um, th- there's another one here. It's a uh, Probably may know who, who wrote this. This is a painting of, of, from Van Gogh. He, uh, he shows a picture of picking up the man and putting him on his animal. You ever picked up a grown man? It's probably not an easy task. Probably not too many of us in here can do that, right? But he, he, he binds his wounds and then he, he lifts him labor and he puts him on there. Interesting note, you may know some of Van Gogh's story, but he was in uh, south of France and he was uh, sick and he was... Uh, exhausted, and he was mentally going, going crazy, going ill. And he checked himself into the insane asylum. And in the insane asylum, he, 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 he copied two paintings of another French painter, and this is one of the two he painted here, of the, the great example of compassion. And Isn't that interesting he chose that? A man that's mentally ill, that's literally losing his mind, he's realizing the, the need for extreme compassion. That's another camp, right? The mentally ill. That's a topic for our day, isn't it? Mental illness. We have compassion. Um, Van Gogh displays that piece of the narrative. And finally, there's one more painting. I'm not sure you can see it. This is from Rembrandt. He's the shows the Samaritan is the guy at the door paying. He's paying money for the man to stay. The, the, the Samaritan stays overnight and takes care of him. But he also gives him two denarii, which is uh, two days' wages. Some commentators say it would have probably kept him there for about 24 days. And the text says that after that, if he has more costs, let me know, and I'll, I'll pay for those too. He goes to great lengths. Um, to love, to be a neighbor is going to cost you financially. Just, just let you know. Like, when you embrace Jesus, it's just going to cost you. You're, so if money's your thing, if, if money's kind of your idol, the thing you hold on to, uh, Jesus is going to come after it. Um, that's just what he does. He, he cares about us a lot more than, than our money. And he wants our hearts. And, and for some of us, maybe money's the easier thing. Like, let me write a check and then deal with that. Let me make a donation. <laughs> I don't really want to get involved. But Jesus is not... Uh, the Good Samaritan is going to say that it's costly in every single area. It's going to cost our time. It's going to cost our energy. It's going to cost us financially. It's going to cost our comforts. To love our neighbors in Midtown, your next door neighbor or your coworker is going to cost you more than you imagined. And that's why the priest and the Levite go by. That's why we go by. Stakes are high. That's what Jesus is trying to show this man. Back to the original quote I showed you of, um, of Newbegin. When we come to Jesus, there's a fundamental shift. And we realize that um, our life is not our own. And we must abandon an introverted view of life where we, it circles around us. And it begins to push us out in new ways. Just a final thought. Um, as we close, Jesus never, uh, with the parable, he never answers the man's question. Did you notice that? Um, the question the man asks is, 
very beginning, 25, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is going to tell him a story. If you weren't, um, if you weren't careful, you could think, well, the point of the story is be compassionate and loving, so you inherit eternal life by being compassionate and loving. Like, be a nice person, and then voila, there it is. You have eternal life by being a nice person, a good person. Jesus says, go and do likewise. But remember, what was Jesus' goal with the lawyer? What was he trying to do? He was trying to expose his need, wasn't he? He was trying to reveal, you said the law, but you can't keep your own standard. You said do this, love this way, but you can't do it. He's trying to show him his pride. He's trying to show him his arrogance. And we see at the end by his statement, he hasn't gotten there yet. He hasn't named his own arrogance. Who can have compassion like this? When the Samaritan is named, the guy's like, well, I should say, I'm done. I'm like, throw in the towel. I can't lo- no one can love the Samaritan. No one can love like that. That's the goal of the parable, to reveal our hearts, to expose us. And the man would say, how do I do it? How do I have eternal life? Jesus in John 17, eternal life is this, knowing the one true God in Jesus Christ. The man in front of the lawyer, Jesus, is where life is found in relationship with Him. The man was supposed to be brought to confession, to repentance. Not to say you, you, internal, you inherit eternal life by keeping the law. See, the way the Gospel works is uh, this story, there's a man in the ditch who's, who's, who's stripped naked in the ditch, beaten, bloody, left for dead, and rescued. But the Gospel is, there was one stripped, beaten, broken, nailed on a cross, left for dead, and forsaken. No rescue. No Samaritan. No one came. None of us came. Nobody came. The Father turned His back. Why? It's in the compassion of God for us. It's because none of us keep the standard. None of us keep the law. We're much more like the priest and the Levite than the Samaritan. We don't change our heart. We don't have the ability to change our heart. But Christ absorbed, He took, He embodied, He died. The heavens were rent open as Christ died in His compassion. And then in relationship with Him, in connection with Him, now we get new hearts and new life and resurrection life that we might just maybe be able to have a bit of the compassion that flows. See, the Samaritans revealing the compassionate heart of God and His goodness. We're going to talk about our church. We, we want to be a compassionate church. We're going to talk about in the weeks ahead. We, we shared about missions uh, earlier, which was great, uh, over, uh, in Costa Rica. We're going to hear about missions uh, that some are doing to refugees and immigrants already in our city and how we can be a part you're going to hear about missions to the school, to Lionkoff, where we've been building bridges. See, we want to be a church that as God is showing us deep compassion, that we get to live out 
in small ways, and day by day, the compassion for others that He has shown us. That's a big task. That's such a big task. But that's what it means to neighbor. That's what it means to love. And we pray that God would do that in our hearts. Let's pray. Jesus, thank You for our time and Your Word. And a lot of, lot of words, a lot, lot said, and yet there's so much more that could be said. I confess my own heart. I, I struggle to be grateful. Um, I struggle to be compassionate. I get frustrated easily when things don't go my way. Um, so often people are annoying. They're a nuisance. Um, and yet you died for me in that state, in that condition. Would you change my heart? Would you change our heart to know more and more the goodness and the grace of your compassion? Compassion so great that it came for us even in our worst day. Jesus, make that true of us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This time, would you stand? As we sing this song, we'll also take up our offering. We ask that you, those who are able to give as the Lord has blessed you.